Greetings, comrades, and I'm looking a little bit more, I guess, disheveled than usual. I wasn't 100% sure if I was going to even come down and, and do a show today. As usual, so many things on the plate. And I was thinking, you know what? There's just so many things going on. I want to talk about them. And fortunately, today, I think we're going to make pretty good time with everything that's happening and everything that I want to talk about. First off, I'm going to do the big news first. We're going to talk about the Iowa caucuses. It will be quick, really not much to say there. Then we're going to talk about South America just completely popping off. So many things happening on that continent, a continent usually known for its sort of peace and quiet, really throwing off that mantle right now. Then lastly, I want to talk about the raids on commercial shipping by the Houthis in the Red Sea, and we'll finish off the show with that subject. If I don't look my best, the show where I don't look my best is better than the show that doesn't exist. So without further ado, we are going to jump into our first topic here. Nope, I got to change that picture. It's old. Obviously, we're talking about the Iowa caucuses. Like I said, considering this is the first rubber meets the road point of the 2024 election, it's important that we take a little bit of time at least and talk about it. Unfortunately, like I said, really not a lot to talk about. And if you're not a person named Donald Trump, this was a bad night for you. So while I, I trash the New York Times kind of pulling aggregate, uh, they are the undisputed kings in my mind for displaying live results and upkeeping live results. Uh, still to this day remain, I think, the gold standard, at least for American politics. Regardless, though, talking about uh, these results, like I said, unless you're Donald Trump, there's really not a lot of good news for you. Unfortunately, this probably is the best result that he could have hoped for for a couple of reasons here one is that he crossed over that vaunted 50 percent threshold that was the number i personally was looking at uh, during this contest i didn't really expect anybody to come up and uh, eat donald trump's lunch so to speak it was pretty much on everybody's radar and everybody pretty much assumed correctly that he would win and win by a comfortable margin so for me the big question was was he going to get above 50 percent because People were saying, I saw some Democratic strategists come out trying and spin this. You don't need to spin this. It's really not a, a political surprise to anybody. But they were saying like, man, there was, he only got 50, you only got just above 51%. So there were 49% of the people who voted against him. And the thing about that is, is right, is I was looking at that 50% number too. And if that number was closer to 40% or 45%, that doesn't even guarantee that there's a race. It just shows that there is a possibility of, of a race there. And right now, getting over that 50% threshold really pretty much almost entirely closes the door on anybody else being able to get the Republican nomination at this point. Going into New Hampshire, we have the tiniest, tiniest, tiniest bit of probability that Nikki Haley could pull out some sort of upset victory. And then she might have the momentum to make this thing like a real actual race. But given her performance in the caucuses, I don't really think she was going to get that boost because... This was not a good night for Nikki Haley. She was really hoping to, I think at least, I'm assuming she was hoping to at least get a pretty solid and decisive second place. I don't think she even in her wildest dreams thought she was going to win this caucus, but her goal was to come in and comfortably defeat Ron DeSantis and show a strong second place and give her that momentum and that energy moving into New Hampshire. That did not happen. She managed to claw one single county in victory, but overall, Ron DeSantis beat her slightly for that second place vote. Ron and Nikki coming in so close is the second big reason why this is a good night for Donald Trump. 
not having a clear contender coming out of this race to challenge him with that momentum going into New Hampshire is a pretty good thing for him. And if moving into New Hampshire, we have Donald Trump winning that state. I mean, at that point, I really do think it's pretty much a lock. It's pretty much a wrap. The rest of the contest is just a formality. But New Hampshire will definitely be the state where it'll be a make or break for a Nikki Haley. Let's take some time and let's see what is going on in New Hampshire and what we can expect. All right, so we have New Hampshire pulled up here. And I mean, by the next time the next show comes out, pretty much New Hampshire will be already said and done and we'll have some results to actually look into. Um, I don't know if you guys have noticed is that I don't like to spend a ton of time on polls. I do think that they are important. They're important to look at and talk about. But ultimately, what matters for me is the results, right? We had the results in Iowa. We're going to have these results soon. So sitting here and speculating, for me, I do think that considering that Donald Trump uh, did very well in Iowa, certainly his contest to lose on the 23rd, we can obviously see that Nikki Haley is surging considerably. But at the same time, Donald Trump is also picking up steam as some of his other contenders like that are more aligned with him, like people like Vic, who dropped out yesterday or the other day, maybe move into his camp. So at the same time, while Nikki is gaining considerably, Donald Trump is all also experiencing a upswing as well. And then when we look at our real clear politics average, we see Donald Trump very much so ahead. There was some polling coming out just recently. I saw that put things a little bit tighter of a margin when that kind of three to four point margin. And I wouldn't be surprised, actually, if we do see things tighten up at least a little bit. But ultimately, I think that given her less than stellar showing in Iowa, Nikki Haley won't have that momentum to stake a victory in New Hampshire. So we'll see. We'll talk about it more when the actual results come in. We have a little bit more to talk about. These two states together, of course, are going to give us a very good indication of where the Republican base is and where the primary will go. And of course, if Donald Trump cleans it up with both these states comfortably, like I said, be pretty much a, a done deal at that point. You have everybody else basically just hanging in there, hoping that his legal troubles will take him down. Not exactly the best political strategy, so wouldn't want to hang my hat on that one. So now let's break apart South America because we have three hotspots here that I want to talk about. First, we're going to talk about Venezuela. Then we're going to talk about Argentina. And then we're going to talk about Ecuador. So going to Venezuela here, now that we've had about a month and a half or so, six weeks to really digest what has been going on here with the referendum and the rhetoric coming from Maduro. There has been a lot of talk about this, and, and I know you guys are pretty well informed, so I don't want to spend too much time getting bogged down in the basics. But long story short, this big old country here, Venezuela, has decided that it wants to take over this larger part of its neighbor, Guyana, like we, we talked about the 90 degree Belgium. And this part of Guyana contains very few people. Let's see if we can zoom in. If we're going to get any kind of discernible features at all. We're talking remote jungles with very, very limited infrastructure and access to the outside world, right? So this whole area is extremely remote, mostly covered in jungle very few roads and the main reason why venezuela wants this little chunk of land is because you know what let's bust out the page marker here so this is the territory in question and if 
Venezuela annexed this territory. They argued that it would extend their zone of control, their sea zone of control, out into this area, which just happens to have some oil here. So it has a lot of geopolitical conflicts in the 21st and 20th centuries. They do boil down to energy resources, predominantly oil. And here in this area, they recently discovered a sizable pocket of oil resources that are pretty easily extracted and refined. And Guyana has used it to fund themselves to a greater level of wealth, something they haven't experienced before. This country was one of the poorest nations on the planet. I actually got a buddy who uh, went here a long time ago, though, 15 years ago. He told me it's one of the most beautiful places on the planet, but incredibly poor, though recently things have reversed, as oil wealth may, may tend to do for you, having a little bit of oil. Let's see, we'll change your current status around a little bit. And one of the things that Guyana has been doing is that, well, maybe not so much in its own, but when the world learns that you've just had this kind of oil reserve, right? All of these arms dealers are just going to mysteriously show up on your doorstep. It's like the Resident Evil 4 merchant. What are you buying? The, of course, the, the original one, not, not the remake. I imagine like you've got all these shady merchants like loitering outside the capital, uh, waiting to get the president's ear. Regardless, though, Guyana's used this oil to fund themselves, their citizens, and their military to a considerably higher level than they were before. Venezuela is thinking if we let this situation continue, we might not have the chance to exercise this old claim that we have because Venezuela does have an old claim on this territory. It's based in British colonial orders. It's pretty esoteric and I don't, it's not important to really break down the details. Basically, all you need to know is that once again, the British have managed to draw borders that fucked up the world. So Venezuela is thinking that A, if we want to use this claim, get this oil, Better to do it sooner rather than later before Guyana can actually build the military. B, Maduro is having an election this year, and it is very much so, I think, personally, this is my opinion of what is happening on the situation is I don't think he's actually going to invade. I think that this is all like a, a puff your chest kind of bravado move meant to stoke up a little bit of national fervor, meant to stoke up a little bit of patriotic rah-rah spirit. Or, and or, more rather, he could use this as a cover to gain more control over the apparatus of the state, use some sort of military or war declaration to suspend rights, to suspend the Constitution, to suspend this upcoming election, whatever he wants to do. I think that that's possibly in the cards as well. So that's personally what I think he's doing. I don't think he actually intends to really move and annex this territory. But then again, right, I was talking with uh, some people about this. And like, I, I always like to talk geopolitics with everyone and anyone that I can in, in real life that will talk about it with me. And I was talking about it with, with someone and their point was like, well, if he doesn't do it, uh, he's made this whole big show and just yeah, puffed out his chest and what have you. If he doesn't do anything, it looks like a real limp dick move, right? He looks a real cowardly uh, that he did all this bluster and then nothing came of it. So there could be some sort of theoretical pressure for him to do something, right? Like in Hearts of Iron, when you manufacture a war claim, and then uh, if you don't actually use the war claim, you get a, a political power hit 
they deduct some political power from your country because you got everybody all hot and bothered and then didn't follow through. But especially considering we haven't really seen anything happen in this area since this whole referendum last year compounds my, my suspicions that this is really just all a, a game of, of bravado and trying to build up nationalistic and patriotic for, and hopes that he can translate that into votes and political capital. So that is Venezuela. Let's move south now and talk about Mr. Melee, the new president of Argentina. So let's talk about this guy, right? So if you are unfamiliar with uh, one Javier Millet, well, <laughs> this is all you need to know, right? He's got this weird kind of ANCAP supervillain costume here going on. Very eccentric figure, and a very eccentric figure who was able to be elected to the presidency of Argentina. If people wonder what I think about Millet, well, I absolutely despise anarcho-capitalism as an ideology. I think it is probably the worst ideology out there. Well, right, right underneath the hardcore ethno-state fascism akin to kind of Nazi Germany, then ANCAP is like right below that. So he represents everything that I hate and more and stands for everything that I am opposed to. But the thing is, is that I don't see this guy as some sort of threat to a revolution to worldwide politics. I think he's going to do an extraordinary amount of damage in Argentina, and it's going to suck to be an Argentine for quite some time. But this guy doesn't represent the spark of some sort of anarcho-capitalist uh, flame igniting across the world because Argentina is really the only place that a guy like this and an ideology like this could have a conceivable chance of taking root and being elected in a popular election. And if you need to understand one thing about why this guy was elected and one thing about Argentine politics in general, you need to understand Peronism. And Peronism is its very own unique political ideology, which exists in Argentina and is like the status quo political ideology in Argentina and has no roots in any other country or reflections elsewhere. So some people have described Peronism as a left-wing ideology. I am not some people. I do not consider Peronism to be a left-wing ideology. And the main reasons are, one, it's very associated with sort of Argentina and Argentine culture. And two, it's highly focused on maintaining and preserving socially conservative hierarchical elements, which really don't have a place in at least socialism, in my opinion. But they do have a pretty reasonable and pretty interesting description here on Wikipedia. I'll just read it for you because it is one of those things, right? Like I was trying to explain Peronism to somebody who was pretty politically savvy and I was struggling to do it, right? And I'm, I'm myself a very politically savvy guy and just trying to struggle to parse it is a, a task in and of itself. So ideologically populist, Peronism is widely considered to be a variant of left-wing populism, although some have described it as a Latin American form of fascism instead. That is where I fall into. Others have criticized this as a one-dimensional, others have criticized this as a one, as one-dimensional for having negative connotations 
as it also includes forms of national populism and national socialism. Peronism was described as socialist by some political scientists who classified it as nationalist socialism or non-Marxist socialism or Christian socialism. So you have a whole bunch of very weird classifications getting mashed together here. Other scholars evaluate Peronism as a paternalistic conservative ideology with a mixture of militant liberalism and traditional conservatism. Supporters of Peronism see it as socially progressive. The main Peronist party is the Gisicalist party. The policies of the Peronist presence have differed greatly, but have often been described as a vague blend of nationalism, laborism, or populism. So yeah, you have an idea there that it is a very unique blend of political thinking and political aspects that has emerged for the people of Argentina. I was also interested to see what uh, ChatGBT would spit out for us if I asked it, whoops, to describe Peronism. Since the mid-20th century, his main key aspects of Peronism include populism and authoritarianism. It's characterized by a populist approach that aims to appeal directly to the masses, often bypassing traditional institutions. Social justice and labor rights, uh, strongly advocates for social justice and instrumental in advancing labor rights in Argentina. That is definitely a very big thing, is, is labor rights, particularly. Economic nationalism favors economic policies that emphasize domestic industrialization, import substitution, nationalization of certain industries. Third position in international politics, so neutral during the Cold War. role of Eva Perón, Jean Perón's wife, played a crucial role in the movement. She was a powerful figure who championed labor rights and women's suffrage, and she remains a symbolic figure of Peronism political influence and evolution over time Peronism has evolved and split into various factions ranging from left-wing to right-wing ideologies it's it's adaptability and the charismatic leadership of Peron have allowed it to remain a potent force in Argentine politics beyond politics Peronism has influenced Argentine culture including art literature and music often glorifying the ideals and accomplishments of Peron and his wife okay so there you go a real crash course on Peronism and again, if you guys are trying to figure out what's happening in Argentina, you really have to understand Peronism and the political legacy that it leaves behind in the country. So Melee is really coming in as a foil to the kind of Peronist establishment and something that really exemplifies a lot of the opposites of what Peronism was. I do think, though, that he will have a lot of difficulty in implementing his agenda. Already he's seeing massive riots and pushback, which he calls them all communists, and then brings in the military and the police to crack down on them. And that's my big issue with narco-capitalism, is that <laughs> it ultimately always leads to some sort of dictatorship and concentration of power in a very small number of individuals hands and because of that ultimately ends up undermining all of the kind of freedom principles that it tried to espouse in the first place and of course his shock therapy his self-described shock therapy style of capitalist economics has been tried in various countries throughout the years and has failed spectacularly every time so we have seen this play before and we're going to watch it all play out again and that's melee for you so, with Argentina out of the way, I will be definitely keeping an eye on what's happening. And I will say there is one aspect of Melee's, thinking of Super Smash Bros. Melee. Anyway, Malay, there is one aspect of Melee's 
economic policy that I am very interested to see how it plays out. And that is his dollarization of the country. If you guys don't know, one of his big policies that he's trying to fulfill is the absolute decimation of the Argentine peso and having it replaced with the US dollar. And I think that that is a very interesting economic move. I don't think that it's going to ultimately work out because I think that you are sacrificing so much control over your own currency to another country that if things go south in the United States, you are 100% tied to them no matter what happens. But that being said, this is the first of its kind. And I have always thought that what if another country decided it didn't want its currency, it wanted to just kind of like de facto adopt another. And this was pushed for and supported by the government. How would this actually work? Wouldn't that be an interesting experiment? Well, now it's happening. And this is definitely going to be different than something like the Euro, right? Because the Euro was all these different countries coming together and deciding we are going to replace our currency with something new that we're all on board with. This is a country deciding we're going to get rid of our currency and just wholesale adopt another ones and use that as our currency from now on. It is bizarre, but yeah, it's from a purely like scientific and political scientist standpoint. I am interested to see what happens there. Now we move on to Ecuador and I don't have too much to say about this because there was only a real uh, story that just popped up and took over the world for a little bit and then disappeared. But obviously there is still a, quite a state of chaos going on in the country of Ecuador. So basically what has happened is that over time that we've been talking about kind of uh, cartels and organized crime taking over certain parts like Mexico and uh, other parts of uh, South America. One thing we talked about in one of our episodes, we talked about in Colombia, how they have been able to really crack down on a lot of the drug trafficking elements in that country and things turned around. Unfortunately, while things turned around in Colombia, it looks like all of that business just went south Ecuador and now things are going south in that country as narco gangs and drug lord gangs have moved into the country and used it as like a staging point in between not just Colombia and Peru, right? Because it's right in the middle there, but it's also a good area where they can use it to export drugs up, of course. Let's look at the map here and come out of Ecuador and very easily go up, bring your drugs into uh, the western coast of the United States. Maybe you get through Panama too, bring it up into... Uh, Eastern United States as well, right? Lots of access for you here in Ecuador. If you're a drug smuggler and you have a government which is apparently weak and collapsing. So weak, the big uh, event which happened is that a gang of terrorists, of gangsters, drug smugglers, whatever the hell you want to call them, took over a live news broadcast and held the anchors hostage. And they've been... And they've been murdering police like left, right, and center. They've been trying to do everything they can to erode the government's power in the country. And right now it seems like the government is very weak and corrupt and is not able to clamp down on this. The one thing though is that if now if there was a time to clamp down, now's the time. Because if these guys have basically calling out the government and calling down the thunder... It's now time to bring down the thunder, government of Ecuador. If you have any to give, 
Now is the time. They've called you out. It's time to gain control of your country if you have the capacity. And it's a real shame to see something like this happen to Ecuador because Ecuador has always been known as that kind of that bastion of peace and stability in South America. Very, very highly advanced tourist economy, very dollar friendly. My brother actually, for his honeymoon, him and his wife went to the Galapagos Islands. You can see them on the screen there. And yeah, he said it was incredible. He said it was an amazing time. That was recently too. That was only a couple of years ago. It's been in an even shorter period of time than that, that things have uh, deteriorated in the country. And a lot of people have been making a lot of parallels to see if Ecuador can do what they did in El Salvador. And that was something, or that, and this is something I'm thinking maybe doing like one time, like a deep dive or, or full kind of episode on what they, the government in El Salvador basically did to crack down on the drugs and organized crime elements that were in their country threatening to take over and topple the entire government. So basically what they did was they built these like super like mega mega they, these like super mega hyper secure hyper concentrated super prisons and they found all the high ranking gang members all the higher ups all their lieutenants and all like the middlemen that they could and then they kind of like jammed them all into this like super secure ultra prison and they just left them there and like they're not letting them out they're not they're just leaving them in there basically and the government of Salvador has basically come out and said like we've given these people so many chances they violated the trust of our country so many times we can't afford to let them out this is basically where they have to stay forever essentially if we want to have a functioning society and the thing is that it has worked right now the murder rate in el salvador has crumbled to a point where it's on par with most sort of first world western countries right this was when i was growing up and in high school like the one country oh man el salvador that's dangerous right one of the most dangerous sounding places there was but now it is one of the safest places in Central America because they targeted the heads of these organized criminal elements and effectively decapitated them or incapacitated them to the point where they can be the threat that they used to be. So I just wanted to really bring that to everybody's attention. I thought it was worth talking about at least a little bit. Obviously, we don't know what's going to happen in Ecuador, but it, things, it seems like things are deteriorating rapidly in the country. And it is a not a good situation. But speaking of not a good situation, it is time to wrap up the episode and talk about the Houthi attacks in the Red Sea. And this is, man, this is definitely shaping up to be one clusterfuck of a geopolitical event. So again, not going to go into a huge ton of backstory, but effectively in Yemen, there has been an ongoing civil war for actually i was gonna say almost a decade but yeah it, it started in 2014 so this year will be a decade of a civil war in yemen between the kind of internationally recognized government of yemen which equates to about i'll put them in green these are very rough territories right this is basically what the government of yemen the internationally recognized government of yemen holds and this is what the Houthis, who are going to be the main subject of our discussion here, uh, this is basically their territory. 
So they own the territory right here along the coast of the Red Sea. And not only does this have the coast of the Red Sea, this also has the bulk of population. So this is like where everything happens in Yemen. This is where most of Yemen is. And it's controlled by the Houthis, who are they're an ethnic group that have basically rebelled against the ruling government because they believe that effectively they weren't having enough representation. This is obviously an extremely abbreviated version of what's going on. But regardless, though, they were uh, an ethnic group within Yemen that wanted to have more representation, more rights, more uh, independence within the country and broke free against the what we consider to be the government of the country. But one thing I want people to remember about the Houthis, right, is like this is what the Houthis are what we just call them, right? And this is just like a shorthand for the ethnic group of these people. But the who runs the Houthi ethnic group in this territory is not like what a lot of people have been envisioning in their mind, which is this these like plucky freedom fighters just going about their business, fighting for the greater good. So we peruse ourselves back to uh, Wikipedia here and remember that the Houthis or the Houthi movement is known as Ansar Allah, which means supporters of God. And here you can see uh, their flag, which just below they have the translation of what this flag means. It says, God is the greatest, death to America, death to Israel, curse upon the Jews, victory to Islam. So make no mistake about what these guys' ideal standpoint is, what they fight for, what they believe in. They literally have it written on their flag. Sorry, guys, it's pretty tough to root for you when you literally have a curse upon the Jews written on your flag. It definitely really undercuts that moral high ground. So obviously the Houthi movement is an extremist, uh, an Islamic extremist organization, which is aligned with various other Islamic extremist organizations, which happen to be backed by Iran. One of such Islamic extremist organizations is Hamas, who in solidarity with Hamas, the Houthis have decided to start attacking ships which are connected to Israel that move along the Red Strait here and next to their territories, which they happen to be extraordinarily well-suited to strike from. And a, another sort of member of these allied militias is, of course, Hezbollah in southern Lebanon. So they have this kind of group of allied uh, organizations stretching around the Middle East. So now that you know that who these guys are and what they're doing, let's talk a little bit about the implications and what this actually means. Because the Houthis have said that they are going to continue to attack shipping until uh, the Israelis withdraw from the Gaza Strip and make peace with Hamas which at this point seems an extraordinarily unlikely thing to do. So it seems like these attacks on shipping vessels will happen indefinitely. And one thing I did want to check to see is how, one thing I did want to check to see is how is the flow of current, how is the flow of maritime trade disrupted currently? So let's take a look at the global shipping. So here we have marine traffic. This is a marinetraffic.com. This is a snapshot of all the trade across the world at any given point. And we can see that right now at the time of recording, which is, I'll, I'll tell you the exact time right now, it's 6.45 a.m. on June 18th. 
is uh, I'm, I'm up at the tail end. This is the tail end of my sleep schedule right now, uh, regardless. So as we can see, there are still plenty of vessels uh, traipsing through the uh, Red Sea. This is a cargo vessel. This is a tanker. These little uh, purple ones, I believe, are pleasure vessels. Yeah, pleasure crafts. So just people spin it around on the ski boats. Passenger vessels are the blue ones. So you can see that they're still even letting tugs and special craft. So yeah, you can see that they're even letting passenger vessels pass through this Red Sea. So there are still ships going through here. And that's one thing I wanted to verify with everybody is because I've been following a lot of uh, coverage about this. And a lot of the people talking about this make it seem like trade is shut down entirely. Trade is disrupted. There are various shipping companies which have denied insurance and coverage to ships passing through the Red Sea, but this is only for people that are vaguely associated with the West. There are plenty of other shipping containers which are not. One of the things apparently that as vessels are passing through the Red Sea right now is they are broadcasting like a message like, hey guys, we're Chinese. Not any of those scary Westerners. We're Chinese over here. So yeah, that's basically the new strategy to get to get through the Red Sea. Uh, but one thing it does, I, I, I wish I had a, the fuck am I thinking? Of? Yeah, I wish I had a, a template of a week ago that I could compare this to. But I don't think that this does. Yeah, I, I, I don't think that this lets me go back in time, unfortunately. But we can see here that going across the Cape, it does seem like that there are a lot of vessels. It does seem like this is a considerably busier point than the Red Sea right now. But again, I have nothing to compare it to. And I wish I had the foresight to look at this map every week so I could make a visual note of where everything is. Unfortunately, I don't have that foresight. And I apologize for that, everybody. Interesting. We can even see in the Black Sea that there is ships coming out of Rostov Don, particularly. Russian shipping is still going out. Although... Ukraine, we can see that things are basically, it's a complete dead zone. Nothing in Sevastopol, nothing coming out of Odessa. Sorry, I'm getting distracted. Anyway, let's move back to the Houthis here, because even if I feel like Israel would come out and be like, you know what, guys, we're abandoning Judaism, we're converting to Islam, please stop attacking the merchant shipping vessels. I feel like that even then they would have no reason to stop because what they get out of this leverage is so much greater than the actual investment that they have to put into it. It's mind boggling. One of the things that should be mentioned is that this has happened before back in 2016. However, back in 2016, they didn't have the advanced kind of drone technology that we have now. They didn't have, again, like the Shahid sort of kamikaze drones which certainly, while they may be slow, they, those, those bastards can certainly outrun a ship. They can launch as many of those as they want from their territory and easily intercept incoming shipping. And of course, they have cheaper uh, missiles than they used to have in the past, so they now actually have the ca capacity to fire missiles from their territory. And not only that, as we zoom in here and we see the territory of northern Yemen, you can see that there are a lot of mountains here and there are plenty of remote and rugged spots which you could set up a sort of missile complex or drone complex inside these mountains 
wheel out your missile platform for five minutes, do the final preparations, make your launch, and then wheel everything back in for the next one and be exposed for such a minute amount of time that there is theoretically nothing that anyone could do to stop you unless they're willing to commit to some sort of special forces and or full-on ground invasion occupation. Because the last time they did this, basically what happened is, is that the United States comes in, blows up all of their capacities to launch missiles, monitors the region for a little bit, and then leaves. And now they're basically doing the same thing already. They've already started striking targets in Yemen. The thing is now is that the Houthis are much more prepared for this playbook. As I said, they're going to put their missiles and their drones and everything else on mobile platforms within these mountains where they can just wheel them in and out. And whenever they need to take cover from an airstrike, they just go into their tunnels. They just go into their mountains and they take cover until the airplanes go. And then they set everything back up again. So I'm suspecting that the Americans are going to find it a lot more trouble than the last time to destroy their missile platforms and their drone networks and everything else. So this is definitely something I am very fascinated to see how it's going to continue to play out. Talking about using your one thing that you have to your advantage, right? The Houthis might not have much, but what they do have is a very strategically relevant geological location and they are using it mercilessly. And that's another thing you guys have to remember about this area. This area is extraordinarily impoverished. This area has been ongoing a civil war, a humanitarian crisis, which dwarfs what's happening in Gaza right now by an order of magnitude, right? These are people who have been fighting for a decade, don't have very much, and all they know basically is that conflict. So it's not like destroying their installations, their bases, destroying what they have is it's, this isn't going to do anything. They didn't have anything to begin with. Right now, these people are playing the only card that they realistically have, and it's giving them an incredible amount of international recognition, the amount that they haven't had ever. Now, everybody's talking about the Houthis. Now, everybody is looking at this region on a map. Now, everybody is trying to figure out how they're going to protect commercial shipping in the Red Sea. And Simply because of that alone, I don't see the Houthis really giving up this anytime soon, unless, of course, the Americans were really able to surprise me and neutralize uh, their attack capabilities. Could be possible. Um, I'm not going to hold my breath on that one. And then, you know, this whole uh, commercial shipping attacks gave me an idea, guys. And here's my idea. And if, if things go south, uh, you can take this idea and, you know, start a new life and use it to your advantage. So I came up with the idea of the drone craft carrier, and this is going to be the new pirate ship of the future. So what it is, is like you and eight or 10 other guys get a ship, got to be a little bit bigger than a speedboat, something that you can conceivably land, you know, six to 10 drones on. And basically you take your ship out, take your drones, put up some explosive grenades, whatever the hell you want on them. Wait till you find a isolated vessel and then basically what happens is you find an isolated ship you radio them up and you say hey guys if you guys don't abandon ship right now we have these 10 drones packed with explosives that we're just gonna fly over to you and drop on you and blow everything up so you guys better get off and just surrender with all the cargo to us then of course if they say no then you just 
launch the drones, do what you said you were going to do, and you never have to actually get your hands dirty. So there you go, guys. That's the note I'm leaving you on for today because I've officially wrapped everything up that I wanted to say. I made extraordinarily good time, and I'm going to leave you guys with a vision of the future of piracy and the drone craft carriers that will patrol the Somali coast in the future. Anyway, that's it for this episode. I'll see you guys next week after we have New Hampshire all wrapped up. We'll have a much better look at where the 2024 Republican primary is going to go. And until that time, this has been the Comrade signing off for now. And you guys take care.